Hello, you are listening to a podcast version of a recent message from Freedom Church's Sunday service. Freedom Church is a brand new church plant in Buckeye, Arizona. We meet weekly at Odyssey Preparatory Academy on Apache Road for services every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. If you're ever in the area, we would love to see you on a Sunday morning. My name is Andrew Cabani, and I'm the lead pastor of Freedom Church, and I just wanted to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our podcasts If you have a prayer request or want to make a decision for Christ after listening to our podcast, please, please, please contact us via the prayer request page on our website, freedomchurchaz.com. Enjoy and God bless. I did forget to mention that uh, it's kind of my one job when I do announcements is to remind you guys that you can open up your phones and you can go to freedomchurchaz.com and there's a yellow banner at the top that gives you all the announcements. It's kind of like my one job. I neglected that whole thing, but it's there uh, for you. And if you click on it, there's a little link for sermon notes where you can take notes while we're while we're doing this, and you can have those emailed to you if you'd like. Uh, that technology pretty sound, I think, so far. Um, and if it's your first time with us, or if you haven't yet, there's a link for a connect card uh, there. We'd love to connect with you, continue to pray with and for you. We have some goodies in the back for you if you want to fill that out. So that's available to you as well. All right, today we are going to talk about the death of Jesus Christ. And I will say that I've taught the Gospels for getting close to 20 years of teaching the Word of God, which is a cool milestone for me personally. But uh, I've taught the Word of God for a long time. And every time we talk specifically, and I think, I think on a lot of occasions, on, on most sermons, you know, we circle back to the death of Jesus because, you know, it's a pretty important thing. <laughs> and uh, so we always kind of talk about it sort of tangentially. But anytime we actually get into the scriptures and we have to describe what happened on that cross, the mood in the room gets sucked out. Like the joy just goes away. The, everything sort of comes down. The whole energy in the room really changes when we talk about it. And that's, that's for good reason. I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing or there's anything wrong with that because that's good reason. It's good to be reverent when we talk about what Jesus did for us on the cross and what he endured. But I'm going to challenge us this morning to keep that energy level up this morning as we talk about what Jesus did for us because there is a reason why it's called Good Friday. It was a very good thing that Jesus died for us. It was the best present we could ever ask for when he bore all of our sin and shame. When God the Father said there was only one way to save these people, and Jesus replied, not my will, but yours. And he got up on that cross, and he died for us, and he endured it all. Can we give God a hand clap this morning as we just expect what he's done for us that's worth, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing that Jesus died for us. Now, with that being said, crucifixion, let's talk about it, transition. Let's talk about crucifixion. Um, crucifixion was created by the Persians, who are the modern-day Iranians. And when they were taken over by the Greeks, the Greeks adopted it. And when the Greeks were taken over by the Romans, the Romans adopted it. So by the time we get to the point where Jesus gets on a cross, it's the Romans who, who set him to that, who, who tell him that that's the way that he's going to, to die. And so um, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but in many ways, and many would say, they kind of perfected it. They kind of perfected the idea of 
crucifixion. They were the ones that added the idea of requiring the person who was about to be crucified to carry his own cross. Uh, we see, you know, literature, movies, everything, the idea, that imagery of Jesus carrying his cross. Their idea, as Romans, was to put the cross on the man before, before they put the man on the cross. And the whole idea with the Romans and the way that they perfected this form of execution was that they wanted this to be as public a display of just nastiness so that anybody who saw it, anybody who witnessed it, anybody who was in, even around that area would be so disgusted, honestly, by what they saw that they made sure that they did whatever they had to do so that that didn't end up being them. That was how horrible crucifixion was. It was, at the time, the worst possible way to be executed. It had, a, it had two goals, actually, in from, in, from the Roman perspective. It had the Rome of breaking you both, these are big words, physiologically and also psychologically. So the idea was to break down your body physiologically, the actual physicalness of your body, to get it to convulse and break down, but also to mess with your mind and get you to psychologically break to a point where you would blaspheme against your creator, would, to, to get you to break down and say whatever they needed you to say to stop the agonizing pain that was happening. The Roman statesman Cicero was quoted as saying, it's a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is an act of wickedness. To execute him is almost murder. What shall I say of crucifying him? An act so abominable, it is impossible to find any word adequately to express it. According to Dr. William Edwards in the Journal of American Medical Association, death from crucifixion could come from many different sources. I'm going to list them for you. Acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure leading to a cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, their legs were broken so that they were unable to breathe. It would require you to use your legs to push up based on the way that you were hanging on a cross so that you could take a breath. And if it took you too long to die, they would simply break your legs so that you could no longer breathe and you would suffocate and die. All right, we're all excited this morning. Was a truly heinous way for someone to be executed. And as we dig in here this morning, again, with the challenge of trying to keep the energy level up, right? Um, good luck with that. As we dig into this, as I've just described what Jesus is going through physically on the outside, I want you to understand as we read these scriptures, keep in the back of your mind that as bad as it was happening on the outside, what was happening on the inside of Jesus was worse, was worse. We'll circle back to that as we close this morning. But what was happening on the outside, all of the physical toll that was happening to Jesus was not as bad as what was happening spiritually to Jesus on the inside as he hung on that cross. John chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can use a Bible app, no judgment here. We love Bible apps. Um, and if you want a hardbound Bible, because it feels good to have tinkling pages in your hands, there are Bibles right underneath every, every one there. If you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take that home with you today. Only deal is you gotta read it every day. That's the only deal we make. So 
John chapter 19 this morning. We are in a two, we are in part two of a three-part mini-series we are calling What He Did. And we are studying the Easter events according to the Apostle John. Last week, we talked about the arrest of Jesus. This week, obviously, we're talking about the death of Jesus. And next week, oh, Sunday is coming, right? We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, surely they're open to John chapter 19. We are going to start reading today in verse 16. Verse 16, we should have it for you on the board as well. It says, Then he delivered him to be crucified, him being Pilate. We, we talked about all this last week. If you missed last week, uh, it was an awesome study. It's online for you if you want. But then him being Pilate, he delivered him, being Jesus, to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is the called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Last week, we talked a little bit about these two thieves that were, that were crucified right alongside Jesus. Um, we talked a little bit about that, but I, I want to dig in just a little bit there so we have that as a baseline for, for what we're talking about this week. And, and we find the story of, of the uh, two thieves uh, broken down for us a little bit more, not in John's gospel that we're reading now, but Luke's gospel. And I have it for you on the board. It's in Luke chapter 23. Starting verse 39, it said, Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, how about you just save us, dude? Like, if you're really God, get us out of here. That's what it says. But the other answered him, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God? See, you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly. We're here for a good reason. We messed up, is what he's saying. We hear justly for a good reason, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, speaking of Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we have these three crosses Again, we get a lot of imagery around Easter time of these three wooden crosses on a place shaped like a skull. That's the idea is that there's a little bit of bend to the hill so that the crosses sort of jump out is, is sort of the idea that you would want to want to see there. And we can all imagine these three crosses. And on these three crosses hung three different men who are an adequate representation of all of mankind. An adequate representation of all of mankind. On the left hung the unsaved. On the right hung the saved. And in the middle was the bridge to salvation. All of mankind was represented in those, those three wooden crosses. The unsaved, the saved, and how we get there was right in the middle in the form of Jesus Christ. All right, let's continue reading here. Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. The writing said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, and for, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
Pilate writes a nameplate, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The final nameplate, which very, very much represents and classifies who Jesus was while he was on this earth. Saying, of Nazareth. Nazareth, referring to the idea that Jesus was humble and obscure. One of the things that people used to say about Jesus while he was doing his ministry <clears throat> was what good could come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was just a little tiny town. It was like kind of like Buckeye. Like, what good could come out of Buckeye? This Jesus of Nazareth, right? And Jesus like, there's a lot coming out of Buckeye. There's a lot going on in Buckeye, right? There's a lot coming on in Nazareth. But Nazareth was meant to mean, hey, it's not this big fancy place. Jesus wasn't born on Park Place Avenue or Boardwalk or whatever the Monopoly names are good. Jesus was born on Baltic Avenue. I don't know. I don't know. We, play the, we play the Star Wars version, so they're different names in our house. But um, uh, that's where Jesus was born. And the idea of Nazareth is to tell us that Jesus was humble and obscure while also still being the king, right? And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Hebrew being the theological language of the day. Those who were more in the religious sects of life, they would read Hebrew. They would speak Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew that he was king. It was written in Greek. Greek, the intellectual language of the day. Those who garnered wisdom and those who saw themselves as book-ridden, uh, able to read books. I don't know. I'm, I'm showing my, my intellectual properties right now, right? Um, but the intellectual language were Greek. And then the Latin would be the political language of the time, obviously the Roman overlords. So written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. For those theological, intellectual, political, whatever you say your background is, we want everybody to be able to read that this man is king. He is king to all in every race nation, language that you can come up. He is king. All right, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without a seam, woven from top in, in one piece. This is an idea back to the Old Testament in the book of Exodus when the high priest wore a tunic that didn't have any seams in it. It was just a one-piece tunic. So this is Jesus's our high priest is, is sort of what's, what's happening here. They said to them, they said therefore among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says my divided, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. You know, I was, as I was studying this week, this was the part that kind of stop me in my tracks. There's, there's always, every, every now, every time I study the word of God and we're trying to get through, especially a bigger portion of scripture, there's always like that one part that's like, oh wow, like that's a message in and, in and of itself. And it's the idea that these soldiers are playing games, casting lots, casting lots. They're playing games for Jesus's garments. They're playing games in the shadow of the cross, in the background of them messing around focused in on what they want, what they want out of this world, what they want in life, the things that they're trying to get. In the background is God himself hanging on a cross, dealing with the biggest spiritual battle, cosmic battle that's happening in the world is happening right behind them. A movement of God that's never been seen before is happening right behind and they're, they're throwing dice, essentially, 
out in front. And it made me think and it challenged me, how often am I too focused on my own games to, and I miss what God is doing right behind me. I'm in the shadow, focused on the wrong things. I'm focused on trying to get mine and trying to get nice things and trying to do the best that I can. And in the background, God's yelling, Andrew, I'm doing something here. I'm doing something. There's a movement happening. How often I get preoccupied with other stuff and I don't even know that there's something big happening right behind me. That really challenged me this week. Verse 25, now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, this is John's sly way of adding himself into the word without actually saying his own name. This is John saying, the I mean, if I got to write a book of the Bible, I'm putting something like John put in there, like... And he was, he was with, not Andrew, the disciple whom he loved. This is John putting his own little twist on it. He does it a couple more times. Next week is my all-time favorite. I'm just going to give you a, a preview of next week. Next week, he makes sure to put it in there for no other reason except to say that he beat Peter in a foot race. That's, that's really the only reason he does. John is a dog. I like John a lot. But that's the only reason he puts it in there is just to say, hey, I, we both ran to the tomb, but I got there first. This is essentially the only reason that he puts it in there. But John is saying, I'm there, and these women are there. That's, that's, that's John saying. He says to him, mother, to his mother, Mary, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, again to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. At the height of Jesus' ministry, there were literally thousands of men that followed him. We hear stories of feeding the 5,000, right? Feeding these thousands of people. At the height of Jesus's ministry, he literally had thousands of men that followed him. The book of Luke tells us that that number of those thousands was 70 who were sent out, 70 men who were sent out to the different areas that Jesus was about to go to, to just sort of canvas the area, get people ready to hear the word of God. Of those 70 12 men left everything and followed him, his 12 apostles. Of those 12, only three men were with him in the garden when he was arrested, Peter, James, and John. And of those three men, there was, at the very end, John himself was at the foot of the cross. Only one man was left with Jesus at the very end, only one man was there through thick and thin and still holding strong to who Jesus was. But there were four women. Ladies, don't ever let anybody make you feel less than when you're pursuing God. Can I get a hallelujah on that? Don't ever let them make you feel like you're less than. When you're pursuing God, we so often in the church, we talk about, especially us guys, we mess this up. We so often look back 
at the word of God. And we try to find these characters that we can relate to and that we could learn from, that can teach us. And it's always one-to-one. It's always like, I wanna, I wanna learn from Paul and I wanna learn from Moses and I wanna learn from Noah and I wanna learn from all these different characters in the Bible. But I wanna learn from Mary, the mother of Jesus. I wanna learn from Salome, his aunt, auntie was there. I wanna learn from Mary, the wife of Clopas. I wanna learn from Mary Magdalene and how they couldn't be stopped to be at the foot of the cross, to be there with their Savior, to follow him to the ends of the earth. I want to learn from those women. There was only one man, but there were four women at the foot of the cross. All right, we got to pick it up, guys. we got to pick it up, fellas. All right. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of wine, sour wine, was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I just want to point out here before we continue on that last line there in verse 30. It was not death that took Jesus It was Jesus who gave himself to death. It was not death that killed him. Jesus gave himself up to death. It says that he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Verse 31, therefore, because it was preparation day, the bodies should not remain on the crosses on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken that they might be taken away. I'm gonna pause here for just a second. (laughs) The hypocrisy here. The Romans, again, in terms of crucifixion, wanted this to be as public a display as possible. They would leave those bodies up there until the crows essentially pecked away any remaining flesh that they could possibly do. As a reminder to the rest of the people, you don't wanna be here, right? And so they would leave them up there for as long as possible. And here we have the Jews saying, that's too ugly. Like, it's the Sabbath, it's preparation day. Like, it's, kind of, it's, it's church, we want it to look nice, and we don't want these bodies hanging out in the background. Can we take them down? Or can we speed this up, essentially? So they asked to go and break the legs of the people. The hypocrisy in the Jewish people that, hey, we want our church service to look nice and pretty. Um, but uh, we're going to ignore Jesus himself and what he's doing, right? He says, so they ask him to be taken away, verse 32. Then the soldiers came, and they broke the legs of the first and the other, the two thieves that were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And when he was, has, verse 35, and when he who has seen has testified, John again speaking of himself, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John says, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw the water and the blood flowing from his side. I saw him die. For these things were done, verse 36, that a scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. In verse 37, again, another scripture that says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. 
Medical professionals mostly agree that the mixture of blood and water described in this passage that has purported to have happened to Jesus, I just wanted to say purported because you... I just forced that one in there. Um, but uh, th- this, this idea of this mixture of blood and water that came from the side of Jesus meant that, as we talked about this just a minute ago, Jesus, of the different ways that you can die on the cross, Jesus died from congestive heart failure leading to a cardiac rupture. What does that mean? That's right. He literally died of a broken heart on that cross. Verse 38 After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in stripes of linen and spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. And so they laid Jesus because of the Jewish preparation day. For the tomb was nearby. We have these two rich, wealthy followers of Jesus who come to take the body of Jesus, to wrap him in linens, and to lay him down in a tomb. At the beginning of the gospel stories, there is one Joseph that is wrapping Jesus in linen and laying him down. And at the very end of the gospel stories, here we have another Joseph wrapping Jesus in linen and laying him down. One in a manger, the other in a tomb. God made flesh Jesus Christ, whose story on earth started with one Joseph in a manger, ends with another Joseph in a tomb. If you put yourself, uh, God hit me while we were going through this, and it was kind of late at night because, um, you know, you got three kids. you got to study whenever you can. It was late at night, and I was reading through this, and the idea of Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, wrapping him up, laying him in a manger, Fast forward to another Joseph of Arimathea wrapping him in linens and laying him in a tomb. It really, it really hit me hard because I started to think, like, what if you were Joseph? Either Joseph. All, all you know is what God has, has set in front of you. He said, take this body, baby, or grown man, dead body, wrap it in linens and lay it down and trust God for the rest. Right? What has God put in your hands? What has God given you the opportunities to do? And maybe it doesn't even make sense to you at the time. He just said, wrap the baby in linens and lay him in a manger. He just said, wrap the body in linens and lay him in the tomb. And let me show you what I'm going to do through that baby. Let me show you what I'm going to do through that dead body who's still. I'm going to bring life and hope and peace to a world that needs it. You just trust me for it. Whatever's in your hands, wrap them up. Give it to God, right? All right. Three quick things about what Jesus did on the cross. What Jesus did on the cross. The first thing that he did on the cross was he took care of some business. He took care of business. There was a lot 
happening on the cross. Verse 24 of what we just read tells us that they were casting lots. That fulfills prophecy. Verse 36 tells us that the no bones being broken was a fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 37 says that the spear being put in the side, we just read all of this, tells us that the spear being put in the side was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. John doesn't cover these, but also in other, other gospels, we know that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is an answer to prophecy. Psalm chapter 22, the facts that his hands and feet were pierced is a fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that they gave him vinegar to quench his thirst. Psalm chapter 69, verse 21, a fulfillment of prophecy, the fact that he was buried with the rich, Isaiah chapter 53, was a fulfillment of prophecy. The fact that he was executed the same as a thief alongside thieves, a fulfillment of prophecy, Zechariah chapter 12. All of these prophecies and many, many more, Jesus fulfilled while hanging and dying on that cross. He was fulfilling every single thing that the Old Testament said was required for the Messiah. And Jesus, by doing all those things, said, I'm qualified. Was a shout out to the whole world at the time who had read the Old Testament, knew all the things that had been prophesied back then. Jesus was just telling the whole world at the time, I'm qualified for the job to be the Messiah. Not only, though, as Jesus was taking care of business, did he take care of the past, taking care of all of those prophecies. When he told the thief on the cross that because of his faith, he would see him in paradise, he was taking care of our future, helping us understand better the way that heaven works, the way to get to heaven. Without that statement, I mean, if you really want to dig into like the church and theology and dig into the scriptures if you really want to look at the history of the church, who wants to always, always, the history of the church, and when I say church, I'm talking big C, like, like all of it, across the whole world, not necessarily this church, but all the churches, not even just in this area or this state or this country. I'm talking the whole world. If you look at the patterns, the church always wants to add more things to get to heaven. There's always more things that you have to do. And if it wasn't for this, this particular scripture, when he told the thief on the cross, because of his profession of faith, that he would be with him in paradise, there would be a lot more arguments in this world. We already have a bunch of arguments about how you need to do all these things to get to heaven. Jesus said, no, you don't have to do any of that. You should put your faith in me. Why? Because Jesus said he was going to be in paradise, and that thief didn't have any time to get baptized. He didn't have any time to do all these different rituals. He didn't have any time to do any of that. He professed his faith. Jesus called him saved, and he said, he will be with me in paradise. He took care of our past, and he took care of our future while on the cross. And the last thing he did was he took care of the present. He cared about the present. I'm totally off my notes, but I want to make sure. Uh, when he asked John to take care of his mother, he took all of this cosmic spiritual stuff is happening. All these prophecies are being fulfilled. He's, he's looking to what's going to happen in the future. He's got all of the sin and shame that was being poured on his heart. And he took time and he said, there's my mom. 
I'm not going to be here to take care of her anymore. I need to make sure she's okay. And so he said to his mom, behold your son, speaking to John. John, behold your mother. And John took the job. Now, why did Jesus choose John, a non-sibling, to take care of his mother? I don't know the answer to that. You could, I've heard churches kind of go on these diatribes about how that, that means, you know, us as Christian brothers and sisters, it's stronger than our bloodlines, and that's dangerous stuff. Because you just get people like moving now, hey, listen to me and not your parents. That is a dangerous road to go down. But what I will say is that Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't follow him as Christ at this time. And what I also will say is that John, this could just be Jesus putting his mom in the very best position possible. If you've got a mom, you want to put her in the best position possible, right? John, of all of the followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters included. Now, the scripture also does tell us, just to be clear on that, scripture does tell us, Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters, because it says sisters, okay? Jesus had four brothers. They're listed in Matthew chapter 13 and at least two sisters. And so he could have chosen any of these people, but what history tells us what a lot of the word tells us is that of all the followers of Jesus, John is the only one that's not martyred. John lives a very long life. He is an old man before he dies. He writes the first, the, the first the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He writes the book of Revelation, and then he dies a very old man. And so maybe Jesus was just simply saying, I don't want my mom having to catch a stray stone coming somebody's way, because I know that John's not going to be martyred, right? But he takes care. The point is, is those are all details, and those are all scriptures, and they're important to know. But the point is to say that Jesus takes care of our present as well. He took care of our past, took care of our future on the cross, and on the present, he cares. To say to your present, I care about your current situation. I want to walk with you in life. I want to help you sustain for the rest of your time here on earth, that by my godly wisdom, I can direct you to the things that I think are going to be best for you and help you navigate this crazy world. That what you care about, I care about because I care about you, is what Jesus is saying and what is dealing with on the cross. To your future, I'm on the cross to give you a hope and a salvation that when you die, you will be with me in paradise if you just put your faith in me. To your past, he's saying, I don't care about what you've done. Nail it to the cross. I've already taken care of it, just like he took care of all of those prophecies. He took care of your past, your present, and your future. He took care of business on the cross. Number two, what Jesus did on the cross is he motivated people. He motivated people. We, talk, we just read about Joseph and Nicodemus, who were rich men with means, where it also says, disciples of Jesus, but in secret for fear of the Jews. They didn't want anybody, I'm a follower of Jesus, I don't want anybody to know about it. I go to that church, but I don't really tell anybody about it. I don't want anybody to think I'm one of those weird people, you know? And so they, they had a lot to, to actually lose by being followers of Jesus, and they came out of hiding. Sometimes we make things a little more difficult than they should be. As a Christ follower, our desire is to see people 
come to know Jesus Christ and to follow him. That, that, that's the, that's the, the bare bones of any Christ followers. You want to see more people come to know Jesus and to serve him in their lives. And we're constantly trying to find new ways to help people do that, right? It's like it's some kind of like gymnastics routine. And if we do a cool move, it'll like actually get a better score, right? Like that's what we think about all the time. And I, I have like we just had lunch with another church planter that's in Levine yesterday. And the conversations, they always turn into, oh, well, we're trying this, or have you tried this, or our eggs are this big, and we, we're trying it for pancakes, and we're, we're going to do these things, and we're having an Easter egg hunt, and we're trying this or that or then the other thing. And now I want to make be clear, that's what the conversations always turn into. And reaching people for the gospel of Christ, we have to be creative for it, right? We got some flack on the internet this week. What does an Easter egg hunt have to do with with the resurrection of Jesus. We got some flack on that. Um, we're, we're just, we're trying to reach people. We're just try, trying to have a family event. The word of God does tell us that we have to build community. That's one of our tent poles as a church. We have to bring people together. We have to do life together. And if we're gonna have a family event where some kids are smiling and eating candy, like that's what we're gonna do, right? But, but to reach people, we have to be creative. Like I pray to God every day to give me creativity because I'm not the most creative person in the world. Give me more ways to reach the loss, but when it comes to motivating people, motivating people to serve God, to get out of their chairs, get out of their pews, and to be the hands and feet that God has called us to be, we make it too difficult. We can just take from what God did on the cross. Just let people like Nicodemus and Joseph see what Jesus did on the cross for them, and that's all the motivation they'll, be, they'll need. Help them understand what was happening on that cross and that it was all for them. That as they hung, that he hung there, as he took it all on himself, it was for them. That's motivation for people. We don't have to get any more creative than that when it comes to motivating people to serve the Lord. And that's what Nicodemus and Joseph were doing. The cross is what motivates people. We just have to get out of the way, really. Last one. What did he do on the cross? He changed the whole world with one phrase. He changed the whole world with one singular phrase. There are certain phrases that are said that change the course of a person's life. The phrase not guilty versus guilty in a courtroom will change the course of somebody's life, right? On a less serious note, the, the, uh, the phrase Fair ball versus foul ball will change the course. It'll change the entire energy of, of a baseball field. We were just out there. My daughter's got games. Like, we're out at baseball fields all the time. Depending on what side you're sitting on, the ball's going down the line, and some parents are like, go foul, go foul. And some parents are like, just please hold on. She's tried so hard, you know. Like, that, that, it changes the whole course of everything, fair or foul. Uh <laughs> When a woman says yes, when she is proposed to, that changes the course of a man and a wife's whole entire life. And this is not a marriage message, but let me just give you some free advice. Fellas, if there's even a chance she's not going to say yes, don't be getting down on a knee, all right? Don't even ask the question. Like, there's even a, a, an inclining that she ain't going to say yes. Just, just get it right about the floor. Give it a couple more months. Like, let's, just, let's try that out. But the phrase, yes, I'll marry you, Changes the course of a person's life. Um, I suppose no will as well. Um, 
Sometimes having to say goodbye to somebody, somebody having to say goodbye to somebody, just that phrase goodbye, can change the course of a life. All these are phrases that change the course of your story. Jesus on the cross said a phrase that changed the entire course of all human history when he said, it is finished. When he said, it is finished. In the Greek, it's one word, it's teleo. Teleo. When he said teleo, it is finished. It's the same thing an author would say when they put down their last period on their writing, on their book, on their novel, whatever they wrote. It's the same word that an athlete would use when they, finishes, when they finish the race. It is finished. It's the same thing that an artist would use when they would give that last stroke on their painting and they would look back at their masterpiece and they would say, it is finished. Or a businessman would say when they close a deal, it is finished. Uh, Noah, you can start to make your way up here. Every other world religion speaks of what you have to do in order to get to paradise. Only being a Christ follower is it based off of having faith in what's already happened, what he already accomplished. What it is, what is it that's been finished? What, when he says it is finished, what's finished? What's finished? Again, it's this cosmic spiritual transaction that I mentioned a little bit earlier, a little bit last week. This, this spiritual transaction where as Jesus hung on the cross, all of our sins, all of our shame, and all of the people who had ever lived and will ever live, all of those sins and stuff were taken out of their personal accounts and they were downloaded into his personal account. Last night we got here and we were setting up and Catherine came up to me. You remember Catherine? She's the one that looked like this on the, on the video. Um, Catherine came up to me and she's like, how you doing? I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm running on empty right now. I don't, I don't have a whole lot of, lot of energy right now. It had been a long day. And so Kat, because this is just how Kat is, she reached out her arm. She put her arm on my shoulder. She's like, here, take it. And so she was like giving me her energy. And I was like, whoa, you gave me your energy. Are you sure you have enough to give? I wanted to make sure she was okay because, you know, we start giving out stuff we don't have. But that was, that's a picture of what happened with Jesus on the cross. All of our bad stuff was taken out of our account, and it was put into his account. So when we mentioned, when I mentioned that in the beginning, that what was happening on the inside was much worse than what was happening on the outside, that's what we're talking about there. That's what we're talking about, all of that stuff being downloaded. So it's when all of that happens that Scripture tells us when he said, when all of this had been accomplished, all of that downloading of our bad stuff had been accomplished into his account, that's when he opened up and he said, it is finished. It had all been accomplished. So the phrase, it is finished, is one that changes the entire trajectory of the rest of mankind. It is finished. There's no more else that we have to do to get to heaven. Jesus did it all on that cross. All we have to do is put our faith in him. Will you stand this morning? As we close this morning, I, I want you to just think about what Jesus did on the cross. I want you to think about all of the work 
that he did on the cross. He wasn't just simply hanging there. <laughs> there was some work that needed to be done. There was some motivation that needed to be done. There, were, there, there was the trajectory of mankind needed to be pushed in a different way. That we were all headed to hell. And love compelled Jesus to get up on that cross, to endure it all. We talked about all the nastiness of what crucifixion looked like. And he endured all of it because he loved you that much, that much. That's how much Jesus loved you. And so as we close this morning, as Noah leads us in one more course, we're going to open up the altars. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I'd like to pray with you and for you. If you've been away from Jesus for a long time, if you've been caught up playing games in the shadow of the cross, not knowing that God is doing something, it's just right over your shoulder. And you want to be a part of that. If you want to acknowledge what God is doing, rededicate yourself to his, to his world, to what he's doing in your life, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. If you just want to pray, the Bible says if there's any sick among you, bring them among the elders, anoint them with oil, pray over them. If there's any needs in the church, we want to make sure that that's available to you. So I'm going to be over here on this side. Heidi's going to be over here. Ladies, if you want to be with a, a, a lady, those eight, those four women at the cross, got power here as well at the altar. If you want to pray with Heidi, she'll be here as well. Whatever it is, we want to give you an opportunity to take care of your business. While Jesus took care of business on the cross, we want the opportunity to take care of business at the altar. So we'll give you that opportunity, and then I'll come back and I'll close this in a prayer.